Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm Frank Bruni. And this is The Argument. It has been a devastating week in America. Tens of thousands of people have gathered in cities across the country to protest police brutality against Black Americans. They're chanting the names of those recently killed by the police. George Floyd in Minneapolis, Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Tony McDade in Tallahassee, and many, many too many more. And they're being met in some cities with violent reprisals from an increasingly militarized police force. The scenes flickering across our TVs and social media feeds are terrifying. Tear gas, riot gear, looted stores, police vehicles on fire, people tearfully begging for justice. Both Michelle and Ross, along with many other New York Times columnists and opinion writers, have been covering these uprisings. All three of us are white people who work in the media, with perspectives that are inevitably somewhat blinkered. But we're going to do our best to talk about the utility of protests and what has and hasn't worked to effect lasting change. Ross, the title of your column last weekend was The Case Against Riots. For people who haven't read that piece yet, or who need a refresher, what is the case against riots, and how does that apply now? Well, the case against riots is twofold. Um, first, riots as opposed to peaceful protest. Um, riots meaning attempts to direct violence um, against not just police, but sort of targets within a given community or outside a community, um, stores, buildings, and so on do a tremendous amount of damage. Um, neighborhoods and even cities take a very long time to recover. Baltimore, the city where I lived for a couple of years, is still recovering from the Freddie Gray riots uh, of 2015. Uh, Washington, D.C. took decades to recover from the 1968 riots. So there is, I think, a high bar in terms of political effectiveness for you to be able to say um, riots are you know, a useful tool for social change. And in the column, I cited some interesting research from a Princeton political scientist named Omar Wasau, um, who basically looks at the contrast between the political effects of nonviolent and violent protests in the civil rights era in the 1960s. And his argument is that basically when protests were able to maintain themselves as nonviolent acts, um, especially when they faced police brutality in the process, that increased white support for civil rights, for the civil rights agenda and for the Democratic Party. And when protests became more became violent and turned into riots, that increased support for um, the Republican Party and ultimately helped elect Richard Nixon in 1968. Now, I, I don't think this is a terribly shocking or surprising finding. And obviously, it's, you know, one measurement of a very complicated historical reality. I think that the Black Lives Matters movement had tremendous success 
sort of highlighting and focusing the American discussion on police brutality um, against black men. And I think that the as you know, as first in Ferguson and then Baltimore, peaceful protests turn violent, that undercut um, the movement to some extent. And I think that and subsequent events, a rise in crime, um, terrorist attacks and so on, created to created a climate of a sort of miniature late 1960s effect that helped elect Trump. Um, and we can we can argue about the political consequences of what's going on now. I'm very uncertain about them. But that's the basic that's the basic argument. Michelle, do you agree with Ross's analysis of cause and effect there? Um, well, with parts of it, I mean, look, I think it's unseemly for an upper middle class, um, you know, extremely privileged white lady to be cheering on riots or to be kind of condemning people over much for property damage, which just seems sort of minor in the context of the repeated um, murder of black people in this country. And, you know, my Twitter feed has been full of these little videos of black people kind of yelling at white radicals for instigating violence, saying that the weight of that was going to come down on them. And then it's also been full of white radicals kind of, you know, celebrating riots and repeating endlessly that Martin Luther King quote, a riot is the language of the unheard. But aside from the immediate electoral consequences, there's also this question of just political consequences. And Ross is right that riots leave like really deep lasting scars on the communities where they take place. At the same time, I think it's kind of undeniable that serious unrest often precipitates political change, right? It happened in the 60s, where the riots after um, or the uprising after the assassination of Martin Luther King leads to the 1968 Civil Rights Act. Um, there's a lot of examples of this. You can see it in some sense right now. Um, on Tuesday morning, Joe Biden called for federal legislation banning police chokeholds. And I don't think that absent the uprisings of the Black Lives Matter movement during the end of the Obama administration, I'm not sure criminal justice reform becomes such a salient issue with so much momentum and so much bipartisan momentum behind it. Um, as a counterexample, I would offer the national protests over impeachment, which were much more widespread than, say, the armed reopen the country protests. Um, they were in as many cities, although certainly didn't involve as many people as these current protests, and got basically no media coverage or were seen as a sort of, you know, quaint little display because they weren't threatening, because they weren't disruptive, they were very easy to dismiss. And so I just don't I don't think there's any question that mass unrest creates pressure on politicians to um, restore the peace, which is what one historian told me in a recent column I wrote. The difficult thing about this current moment is that we have a president who doesn't care about restoring the peace. It's not really in his interest to do anything to stop it. And that makes the situation much more volatile. There's one thing that's frustrating, frustrating me as I listen to this, which is there's a kind of inherent flaw in what we're talking about, which is we're, we're analyzing riots as strategy. And the riots 
I don't think are a strategy. And I think it's really important to make the distinction uh, because it gets lost in the media images for all the obvious reasons to make the distinction that most of the people out there in cities across the country are peaceful protesters with a very clear point that they're making. And God knows, you know, a just grievance. Um, And the riots may come out of that. They may be something grafted onto that uh, by groups. And we're still trying to kind of parse through and figure out who's doing what, which which bad actors are destroying what in which places. Um, But one of the things I want to understand about your argument, Ross, is are you saying that if the possible consequence of what started out um, as a vivid demonstration is a riot, then the vivid demonstration in the first place isn't worth it? No. I'm saying that, I mean, that there are sort of two groups whose choices and decision-making is is deeply entangled with what happens in protests in a given city. And one of those groups is the organizers of the protests, and the other group is obviously the city government. And I think my argument, I agree with you, Frank, that there isn't some, you know, there's no magic switch that you flick that says, you know, here's when a protest, you know, a protest avoids having any rioters attached to it. And here's when it becomes a riot. But I think that people who are running protests and obviously even I I know that even running is a strong word, but have certain obligations to look at, you know, what is the moment when your protest is getting hijacked or taken over by bad actors. Do you observe curfews? Do you cooperate more with police and so on? And then the strategies that politicians and civic leaders undertake have an effect on, and, and this is, it's incredibly complicated and challenging for the reasons you lay out to figure out what kind of strategy minimizes the chances of peaceful protest turning violent. You know, trying to figure out what is actually going on, right, in the age of of Twitter video is really hard. So you have, you know, the sort of liberal side of my Twitter feed is all clips and anecdotes about, if not police brutality, something very close to it, right? But a sort of police riot as the defining story of the moment. And then the right-hand side of my Twitter feed is all images from downtown New York and LA of people running through shops and breaking windows and, in some cases, beating up storekeepers unmolested. It looks like the worst of the, of the LA riots. And obviously, both of those things are happening at once, um, but the challenge of leadership in that moment is figuring out you know, is figuring out what to do about it. And it's easy for a pundit to criticize. But I think it's fair to say that below the level of Donald Trump, who's obviously been dreadful, you have some kind of leadership failure when not when one store window gets busted, but when, um, you know, whole downtowns are sort of a free zone for looting. Ross, you just put your finger on something that I think is super, super important to note as a difference between 1968 and now, which is social media. People are getting much more different separate narratives of what's going on because they have their own curated information systems and feeds. But on top of that, when we were talking about the way in which different agendas, different groups are grafting themselves onto what's going on, they're able to do that in part because the speed of organization through the internet and the force of the internet. And I feel that puts us Uh, in really uncharted territory in some regards. Right. Well, that's what I wanted to say when Ross talked about protest leaders. Like, it's really not clear who are the protest leaders or who are the protest organizers here. There's a really great book um, that I recommend to people about contemporary 
protest movement called Twitter and Tear Gas by Zeynep Tufekci. And one of the things that she points out is that in the past, a protest itself was the manifestation of organizing, right? You just don't get that many people out without organizing. And in the context of organizing, you build structures, you kind of, you know, identify leaders, you identify chains of command. Um, Now, often, you have the protest first, you have the sort of mass convergence that's often sort of spontaneous. And then the leadership evolves out of that. And so that makes it much harder to say what the responsibilities of people are, right? I mean, obviously, I think... Well, unless... I mean, I think there's an open question about police strategy here that we don't fully have a handle on. But it seems like, you know, at the moment, the, the heavy police presence is sort of around large masses of protesters. And then you have smaller groups breaking off and rioting, and the police are either not prioritizing that or not successfully dealing with it. So I was working on a column about de Blasio, and I called um, Eugene O'Donnell, who's a former NYPD officer who's now a lecturer at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and he really just yelled at me for 45 minutes, right, about, you know, that... New York's liberal liberal government and the New York Times, you know, they wanted police abolition and now they've got it. And, you know, basically the police are just, you know, they've they've endured so much abuse and now they're just not going to do anything. Now, I think there's evidence that the police have taken a pretty aggressive stance towards the protesters. But then and then you see hints of a kind of hands off stance towards the destruction of the city. And it's understandable, I, you know, a cop not wanting to put themselves in the line for, you know, for Macy's. I saw at least one one non-New York mayor or police chief, I think, literally give a press conference saying we can't ask our officers to put their lives on the line just to protect property. Um, so that may not be just a sort of it may not be just a sort of, you know, screw you kind of gesture. It may be sort of, you know, defensive policy in effect. Well, and the police response seems to have varied greatly in different places. One of the things I get concerned about in a moment like this when passions are running so high is the way we say the police as if it's uniform behavior, forgive my use of the adjective uniform, as if it's uniform behavior coast to coast, north to south. Um, I have been heartbroken by the pictures I've seen of an overzealous, um, overviolent police response. But I've also been heartwarmed by those images, which I think have taken a backseat to those of police kneeling with protesters. I think it was Louisville where there was that amazing uh, short video on Twitter of a protester hugging a police officer, of the two of them falling into a hug that lasted something like 30 seconds. I think if we're going to talk about, you know, heartwarming images out of Louisville, we also have to remember that the police um, shot a restaurant owner named David Mickety, somebody who used to let the police eat for eat for free. And then I believe his body was left out unclaimed for a long time. And so I do I do understand the frustration of what that I'm seeing from a lot of protesters who think that, you know, those images of the police kneeling that, you know, kind of warm the hearts of liberals like me, then just become cover for later acts of brutality. I mean, that's a very, very fair concern. And those images don't lessen the urgency of the cause. 
I'm just saying that I think one of the dangers of moments like this is when we paint with such a broad brush that, you know, I mean, I, I see signs that say Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Murder. I don't want to see the Blue Lives Murder sign because I don't want to paint every law enforcement officer in the country with that broader brush. And also cops are actually in, you know, serious danger here, right? I mean, you know, you've had people throwing bricks at policemen. The, the police are operating in what is obviously a dangerous situation, and that has to be kept in mind as well. I just want to go back to one thing, guys. We, we began this discussion uh, by talking about the utility of riots. And I keep flashing back during this um, to something that I watched in real time and was to some extent involved in, which is the ACT UP protest, the ACT UP organization of the late 1980s, which was uh, designed to get Americans and the U.S. government to care more about AIDS um, than they were caring about it. And at the time, uh, there was huge debate among LGBTQ people about whether some of the tactics, the die-in in which you in which you threw yourself on the street, and although police officers were nervous about who and who might not be infected with HIV, uh, you forced them to kind of pick you up and move you, the throwing of condoms in the air in St. Patrick's Cathedral. there were, And that's just a, a little bit of what was done and not necessarily representative, but there were many people who were saying these tactics were so obnoxious um, this was so disrespectful, uh, you know, choose your adjective that it was that it was going to alienate people, it was going to be counterproductive. And at the time, it was hard to tell which was happening. I think history shows um, that it was productive. Could that not be the positive thing that comes out of this? In a way, that's kind of different, right? Because we're talking about the efficacy of civil disobedience, which I don't think there's any question that mass civil disobedience, if you can organize it, um, is is really effective. And even if people hate it, you know, and people really hated Martin Luther King when he was alive, but kind of organized, disciplined, civil disobedience, you know, even when or maybe especially when it's viewed as obnoxious by large parts of the mainstream, when it's disruptive, when it kind of, you know, gets in the way of people's ability to just go about their ordinary lives is really, really effective. And the problem is, is that the it's just it's harder to pull off for the reasons I was talking about earlier, because the structures that organize a protest don't really precede the protest itself. Right. No, I think that's right. I think there's a there's a big difference between protests that are perceived as obnoxious and offensive, and even in the case of the St. Patrick's protest, sacrilegious, which I obviously have strong negative feelings about, and protests that are perceived as dangerous to the non-involved. And that that's, that's the difference between a riot and a die-in. A die-in, at most, is, you know, is somewhat threatening to the police officers who have to clear the streets, who are paranoid about touching someone infected with an illness. Um, but it's just a very different situation from, you know, living in a neighborhood and having shops on fire, having your own shop on fire. And that that's, you know, that's where if there's backlash, that's where the backlash comes from. And if there's just a sort of abandonment, right, like nobody nobody was going to move out of New York City or certainly large numbers of people were not going to move out of New York City um, because of Larry Kramer or ACT UP. But large numbers of people moved out of American cities because of riots and crime. And American cities are under a lot of stress from the coronavirus right now, which is another thing we haven't talked about. 
I was, um, I was wondering when someone was going to bring that up. Well, I'll yeah. bring I'll bring it up. So w- tell me what you guys think ab- about this about this question, which hangs over all of this. For the last few months, um, we have been engaged in a policy of dramatic, sometimes draconian lockdown in order to, in theory and hopefully in fact, save hundreds of thousands of American lives from a deadly virus. And the this has involved impositions on civil liberty. It's involved impositions on heavy impositions on religious practice, heavy impositions on families that we've talked about. And it's attracted a certain amount of protest, especially from some of my fellow conservatives. And, you know, th- all of that seems to be gone, right? Like, there's there's no sense that I can see from people running major American cities that there was a public health obligation to prevent these protests. Instead, there was a sense that, you know, that anti-racism was a cause that justified essentially ending the lockdown. What do you guys think about that turn? No one, no one has said that explicitly, although Bill de Blasio did just now. Someone asked him, why can people protest but they can't go to church? And he said, ah, oh, the long history of racism in this country means that protesting is more, I mean, he didn't say more important than church going, but he basically said that. Um, that's not really what the Constitution says, and it's not clear to me that that's, that that's actually a, a totally defensible argument. Well, Ross, I, my, my reaction first is it's, I think the lockdowns are probably relevant in the sense that there are a whole confluence and constellation of dynamics right here that I think have led to, led to the anxiety and the fury of the moment. Um, but I think it also has to be said, it's, I mean, lockdowns are one aspect of the pandemic. The other aspect is the pandemic's disproportionate toll on people of color, on black people. Um, and I don't think you can untangle that from what we're seeing right now. I think all of that feeds into this, don't you, Michelle? I do. I mean, I understand what Ross is saying, right, that people were kind of yelling at people to stay home. And now they, you know, are saying, no, it's actually your sort of civic duty to take to the streets. And how you think of that depends on how you understand the urgency of this moment, right? It's not that people no longer think that it's a risk to be out congregating in groups. It's that they think that it's a risk worth taking as the same way that you take a lot of kind of physical risks when you engage in these kind of protests. And so I think that that's how most of the people who are out on the streets would see it. I understand why conservatives are not going to see it that way. Well, but what about politicians? I mean, what what about like because there are po- this is not just about how people feel, right? The the prior policy was basically the public health version of facts don't care about your feelings, right? It was that you know we have a lot we have these lockdowns. We don't care if you feel like you know that it's urgent to go to mass or you know or visit visit here or gather there or perform charity work, or, you know, any of these other things, we have a policy that is science-based and driven by public health. And now the argument is, actually, these feelings are more important than those facts. Well, no, because all this, all along, people have been allowed out in public, right? People have been allowed in the streets, they've been allowed in the parks. And I just think that, are you suggesting that, that it would be a good use of police resources for them to go out and start trying to enforce social distancing in these mass gatherings. I mean, it just doesn't seem it's just right. I mean, even if you thought that was a good idea, it's not practical or doable. Well, let, well, let me let me spin out a crazy hypothetical, right? Like, let's say no, you'd never do that, Ross. Can I just add quickly that I'm scared to death about what the 
um, kind of public health repercussions of these protests and especially of kind of having, you know, hundreds more people sent to jail is going to be in a few weeks um, in New York City and elsewhere. Right. I mean, I, I think this wouldn't I do think that this one, the protest wouldn't have happened had this become an issue right at the start of the pandemic. I do think the the government response would have been more draconian. It's the protests are a manifestation of anger with, as Frank said, sort of a feeling of sort of disproportionate suffering from the lockdowns. And they're coming at a time when people are sort of exhausted and feeling like, well, the weather's warm, outdoor transmission might not be so bad, let's get out, right? So that's, I think, I think that's one reality. But I, I just want to spin out my hypothetical. Suppose that in the midst of the pandemic, um, there had been another Kermit Gosnell case that came to light. Kermit Gosnell is the um, illegal abortionist who was put on trial in Philadelphia for performing illegal abortions, and it was it became a cause celebre for the pro-life community. Imagine that that had happened, and then the Catholic Church had said, we're going to stage a march for life in, you know, in the midst of Philadelphia and New York. And then some people at the fringes of the March for Life started defacing uh, you know, a Planned Parenthood facilities. What do you think the reaction would have been <laughs> from the governments of those cities to that kind of thing? To say nothing of people in our in our profession, I think it would have been a sort. It would not have been. So, but oh, these people are I moved think, look, by I a deep political passion. It would have been these these lunatics are need to be no, put so, in jail. Ross, I think you're sir. No, Ross, I think you're right. Well, obviously people are going to be more sympathetic to a cause that they think is good than a cause that they think is bad, right? I think that's pretty clear. But I don't know right. that the analogy quite works because, again, it's not somebody saying we are going to stage a march. It's if a bunch of pro-life people sort of suddenly converged, do we think that the police would start arresting them? And I think the answer is pretty clearly no, and that they would probably be treated far more leniently than the protesters we've seen recently. I mean, you can see how the anti-lockdown protesters were treated, you know, despite often being quite menacing and closing down a legislative session in Michigan. You see white-armed counter-protesters um, being violating curfew, being treated much more leniently by the police than kind of the black people who live in those same cities. So again, I think that in your analogy, yes, would I be less sympathetic? Obviously, would the state be less sympathetic? I don't think so. Well, let me tell you who'd be more sympathetic, Ross. I think Donald Trump, given <laughs> given which voters he courts, would have praised those pro-life gatherers, yes. regardless of any social distancing directives. I think the same Donald Trump, um, who had tear gas and stuff used to disperse peaceful protesters so he could march to the so-called march. It was, a, you know, it was a short walk over to the Church of the Presidents where he could hold a Bible. The same Donald Trump, who was very flamboyantly holding that Bible, would have have sung the praises of those pro-life marchers. I think that's fair, Frank. As always in these debates, you know, there's a question of sort of who who is the government, right, at this moment? Yes. Because Trump, yes, Trump is such a peculiar figure. And, you know, as of this moment, he's sort of ranting about, about invoking the Insurrection Act and sending in the military. But mostly he seems to want to, you know, let big city mayors do their thing and then blame them when it doesn't it doesn't work that's but we'll i mean we'll know we'll know more by the time we 
we, we reconvene. Well, we need. Um, I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk in our next segment about politicians, the government, and leadership. But right now, we need to take a quick break. We'll be back in a minute. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. So Ross, Michelle, and I don't precisely agree on which sorts of protests are most useful or how controllable these things are. But there's a whole other question, which is what needs to happen going forward? How do we get beyond this moment? How do we address police violence effectively? And so let's turn to that. Um, Michelle, let's start with you. You had a terrific column earlier this week called the de Blasio Disappointment, in which you went point by point through all the things the mayor of New York City has done wrong. But what does right look like? Well, part of the problem is that you have even very liberal mayors are elected and then they come up against the power of a police force. You know, and this is really what happened in New York City, that even if they are nominally in charge of, they're not really in charge of and that there's a kind of a threat, a constant insurrectionary threat if they go too far in trying to rein it in. Right. So there's some sort of obvious reforms, um, you know, that are so obvious that even, you know, you hear Joe Biden calling for them, the demilitarization of the police, which is something, you know, that has really happened in our lifetimes, right? Like I can remember when police were not typically kitted out as if they were about to charge into Fallujah. And it just seems obvious that if you have this stuff and if you're outfitted in this way, then it changes the way you approach your job and you start approaching the population that you're supposed to protect and serve as if you were kind of in, not all police, obviously, but it, I think, creates a mentality of an enemy occupying force. I mean, you need weaker police unions. That's the sort of big picture reform that, um, you know, to the extent that it already exists, to the extent that you have police forces that are sort of dissolved and started over, you you do seem to get, um, you know, better results and better behavior from cops. But it's a hard, you know, it's a hard policy lift because cops sit at the intersection of public sector unions that liberals and Democrats like and, you know, cops and firefighters and the military, which conservatives like. And that, you know, they they have taken advantage of that position to build up in many cities more protections than they should have. Michelle, what's your reform agenda? Well, I don't I definitely think you have growing support um, among Democrats and certainly on the left for 
um, taking on police unions, even if they people support public sector unions in general. I mean, if you look at this man who killed um, George Floyd, you know, there were so many complaints against him, right? He should have been taken out of he should have been taken out of there a long time ago. And uh, one problem is that these complaints are often, you know, not is that the public doesn't have access to them, which is going, you know, another focus of activism. So I don't know that I have a specific reform agenda, because I, I just think that, you know, a lot of these reforms are obvious. There are things that people in the criminal justice world have been calling for for a long time. It's really just a question of whether you have the momentum to break through all the very powerful impediments to change. And I guess that's my, that's, you know, to bring this back to the opening of, of the show, that's, that's where I'm, I really think that sort of the longer the sort of riots and looting part of these protests go on, the less momentum you have, maybe not in some particular sort of blue cities, but but generally, I think that that to me is what's likely to be the takeaway here. I don't think Donald Trump is like Richard Nixon. I don't think that a period of disorder gets him reelected. But I do think a period of disorder has the opposite effect on that any that kind of that kind of larger momentum. What do you think, Frank? Well, I have to give you a hat tip, Ross, because you just mentioned you don't think that Donald Trump is like Richard Nixon. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you had a great line in that weekend column that we've referenced where you said Donald Trump is like Richard Nixon on his best days and George <laughs> Wallace on all the rest. Did I did I get that right? That is something like that. Yeah. And I know. And I think that's right. I think I think I mean, Trump is different from Wallace in a lot of ways. But I think fundamentally, Trump you know, Nixon was an establishment figure as much as he hated the establishment and was capable of sort of projecting reassurance and showing magnanimity and doing all kinds of sort of leadership-y things um, that Trump doesn't want to do, isn't capable of doing. And it doesn't mean that violent protest couldn't couldn't help him, but I don't think it's it's not a replay of the 1968 dynamic. But let's let's pivot from Trump. I have felt during this I have just been very kind of pained by and aware of what feels like a void of leadership beyond Donald Trump. So I would love for each of you to tell me where you've seen examples of great leadership during this last week, during these last couple of months, what we can learn from them and what maybe they can, uh, what kind of promise they can give us going forward. Who has really stepped up and been the right kind of leader with the right kind of language in this moment? I think Keisha Lance, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, has just been terrific. Um, you know, she's been both extremely empathetic with the protesters, extremely, you know, protective of the order of her city. It was the press conference with her and Killer Mike where he gave this um, kind of impromptu speech about not burning down your own city, but, you know, kind of plotting and strategizing and, and organizing and something that she's done that we've seen over and over again is take really quick action against bad cops, which I like to hope increases the legitimacy of efforts to protect the city. Ross? I was also going to say Keisha Lance Bottoms, which I think tells you something about the general leadership deficit. 
Um, I think the time story. On <laughs> what, him, do you, on, what do you? Well, it just just that so. like we're each reaching for one, you know the same the that same the, example. That the short that the short list is a really really short list. <laughs> and I think there probably is something where, um, you know, I, I think African American mayors and and leaders are just not inevitably, but are potentially in a stronger position to to make this sort of this combined argument that you have to make. You have to be able to say simultaneously, you know, we totally, you know, we totally understand the grievances here and you can't torture your own city. And I think the sort of figure, whether it's de Blasio or the mayor of Minneapolis, I, I feel like sort of, you know, progressive white administrators feel like they don't have the credibility to really offer the second part of that statement. And, you know, when you're actually in charge of a city, that's that's a problem. But again, I think that, Ross, if you've really watched de Blasio closely, he has, I mean, he hasn't been out there saying to the protesters, I feel your pain. I mean, his press conferences have really been striking for the degree to which he seems to see things almost entirely through the eyes of the police, yet the police kind of hold him in contempt. And so he ends up as this feckless sort of figure that doesn't really have anyone on his side. I mean, we already did the segment about whether de Blasio is the worst mayor in New York's history, but I'll just say that I'm, I'm, I, I, we may have done it. We Apparently may have done we did it, it too, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> Frank, let me ask you, has there been any national political figure um, who you've been impressed with? Yes. And I hate to, well, yes. And I hate to give this answer because it's so backward looking and it's so wistful and nostalgic, but Barack Obama uh, I mean, he just came out with a statement in a post on Medium that was published Monday. I, Looking at what he said, I thought this really isn't that hard of a needle to thread. This is really very clear. You denounce acts of destruction, uh, you know, that victimize people you don't mean to be victimizing, but you acknowledge what is behind um, all of this anger in America, and you make sure that people don't lose sight of the genesis of all of this and of, of a very real injustice um, and enormous grief in this country. He nailed it. And you, you read what he has to say and you just become all the more heartsick that we have someone in the white house right now who, while giving like the briefest and most perfunctory and least persuasive of nods to what happened to George Floyd and all that it represents, and then moves as fast as he can to, I am the president of law and order a chilling phrase that shows that he at least thinks there's something to be learned for him of Nixon in 1968. Let me ask each of you a question in closing. Uh, I'm, I'm 55. I was born in 1964. So I wasn't reading the news or really, uh, you know, conscious of what was going on in, in an adult way in the late 60s. And in my adult life, I have never lived through a period where I felt so terrified and concerned for this country where I felt that we are so close to ripping apart. Michelle, your weekend column um, was headlined, America is a tinderbox, and it feels more like that to me right now than ever ever before. And so I'm hoping you guys will give me hope, but I want you to give me just your honest assessments. How scared for and worried about America are each of you right now? Michelle, why don't you start? Look, you obviously don't turn to me to give you hope. I mean, I've been terrified. The night Donald Trump was elected, you know, I cried and cried like I can't remember crying. And, you know, I did sort of imagine that this country was going to be burnt to the ground. I don't know if I could have ever imagined that it would get this bad. 
but just absolute ruin, you know, civil unrest, near civil war, and, you know, something akin to fascism is basically what I expected Trump to deliver us. And it's now it's here. Michelle, does the American Project ride on what happens that first week of November at the ballot Absolutely. Box? Absolutely. I feel like, yes, of course. I do. I Yes, I feel like either we're going to keep having an America that can be, you know, rebuilt or we won't. Okay, Ross, uh, you get the last word and please give me some hope. <laughs> well, look, so I just wrote a book um, about decadence that um, we've talked, you did, uh, we've did you? talked, I did that we've talked about on the show and the book, the argument in the book, um, which has been a version of an argument that I've sort of counterposed to Michelle throughout the life of this show has been that, you know, our decadence is real, but it's more sustainable than, than you think. And that sort of stalemate and repetition are, are more the American norm right now than the catastrophic end of the Republic. And obviously, that argument has been is being put to the test right now. Um, I I agree with Michelle that some of what we're seeing now is what I sort of expected from a Trump presidency, urban unrest especially, and it's only happened now because you've had I think I, I really think the, inst- the the sort of pressure of the coronavirus on our system has been intense, um, and so we're go- we're going through a a test to see how sustainable our decadence really is. I do want to stress, again, the the importance of recognizing that we're seeing all of this um, filtered through a technology, social media, that, you know, plus cable news, designed that makes the world seem like it's falling apart. And, you know, I went and looked up the the data on the Los Angeles riots, which I do remember vividly. They happened when I was 12 years old. Um, it was a huge event. And and yet, you know, it gave way to the relative tranquility of of the later of the later 1990s. And the protests that we're seeing now as of this day are not as bad nationally as the protests concentrated in L.A. were in that period. And it doesn't mean they won't get that bad. And we'll be back here next week to talk about it. But I just do want to stress, you know, that we we're we're seeing through a glass darkly and there are certainly moments when i'm up with my baby asleep on my shoulder at 3am scrolling through my twitter feed from new york when i'm sure the world is ending but we'll know more in 6 months than we do today that's an important bit of perspective okay that's our show this week thank you for listening you can find links to the articles we mentioned in our show notes or by visiting nytimes.com/slash the argument. Also, we want to hear what you think about the protests. More importantly, we want to hear about the conversations you're having with people who disagree with you. What have you learned? Do you have any tips? Leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. We may use your words on an upcoming show. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. This episode was produced by Transmitter Media with help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Brad Fisher, Paula Schumann, and Michele Teodori. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. We'll see you back here next week. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, 
and Judy Woodruff come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.